we continue to walk through the book of Hebrews. We're going to finish chapter 10 today, uh, Lord willing, but I don't have much more beyond chapter 10 to say, so I don't think I'm going to be interrupted at all. We'll, we'll make it here. In many ways, this is a, a continuation from our text last week. Last week, if you remember, I, I preached a, a message. Now, here comes the big test. Okay, I'm, I'm prepared to fail, but what was the... What was the title of my message last week? Great. Who said that? Dirk, you did. Good. Some of you did. Said good. A call to endurance. This was the need for the original recipients of a letter. Life was difficult for them. They're being pulled away from their faith in Christ, tempted to return to Judaism, persecuted for their faith, and they needed endurance. Here we go. We're going to go out on a limb. What were the two pieces of advice? That he gave them. Just to, here's who endure. How, how, how do you endure? What, what's the piece of advice he said? First of all, what? Remember past victories. And second, look to the future, right? Remember, first of all, the ways that you conquered in the past. How you endured the tribulations back then, because if you remember what you did back then, it will help you in the present. And also, look towards your future reward. Have your eye upon the blessings that will come and those will strengthen you for your trials today. Well, this morning we come to verses 37 through 39. We see the the key to endurance. Um, It's my message title last week, the call to endurance. This week, the key to endurance. And rather than telling you what that key is, you might know what it is, but I want you to to sense it as I, I read the text. I want to start in verse 32. And as I get to 37 through 39, really be listening for what, what is the key here to enduring, to live a, an enduring, conquering life. After a tremendously harsh warning section, then we get to verse 32. The writer says this, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." Now listen for it. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Did you pick it out there? What's the key to endurance? Faith is. Good job, Caleb. Faith is a key to endurance. We see the word appearing in verse 38 and 39. Verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. Verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And 37 gives us something that it is we need to believe in terms of the return of Christ. Incidentally, the word faith has only appeared up to this point three times in the book of Hebrews. And every time it's been, been more or less just incidental, just, just talking about people or 
sort of in passing. Like in chapter 4, verse 3, describing those who enter the rest, it says, it's those who have faith who enter the rest. Just kind of like just describing who enters the rest, those who believe. In chapter 6, faith is mentioned as a portion of the elementary teaching that some just couldn't quite grasp, which, which came again and again and required repeated teachings. And the author says there, let's not lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Right? Let's, just, let's just get past that. Also in chapter 6, faith is mentioned as a trait of those who are worthy of imitation. Chapter 6, verse 12, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just, just kind of talking about people with faith. But here, in chapter 10, it's totally different. Here he's going to focus upon faith. He's going to describe it. He's going to speak about how important it is to live by it. He's going to speak about how it preserves the soul. And in many ways, this is a preparation for what's going into chapter 11. This is, if you will, a transitional paragraph. It's a, it's a paragraph that goes from the warning and the encouragement, and then it's going to go into faith. And we're going to see faith 25 times in chapter 11. It's defined in chapter 11, verse 1, and then modeled throughout the rest of the chapter. We see many, many examples of those who believe, had faith, like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Rahab. And many others could have been mentioned by name, but... Rather than mentioning by name, they mention what they did. Look at verse 32 of chapter 11. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Just all these people could have been told about, but rather than telling about who they were, he really tells about what they did. Kind of lumps all these things together. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. Women, by faith, these women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. But you see, all these people who, who did these great things for God gained approval from God by their faith. That's what it says in chapter 11, verse 39. And in future weeks, we're going to set our hearts upon faith and what it means, what it looks like, what it accomplishes, and how it is we're to live by faith. But today, faith is really introduced for the first time. It's a context. It's really what's the key to endurance. When you say, bottom line, what is the key? What's going to help me endure through the trials and difficulties of life? It is faith. Now, before we get into my points this morning, I do want you to observe that in verses 38, 39, 37, 38, 39, two of those verses are an Old Testament quotation. Two-thirds of the text is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's a, it's a loose translation of Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now, the original readers would have known pretty well these verses. Um, 
They would have seen the connection to their situation because the, the connection of Habakkuk to the situation of the, writer, the readers of the Hebrews fits very well. It's almost like exact. And so what I want to do this morning is spend even the majority of our time in Habakkuk kind of setting up these verses and then we'll see how they, how they fit in. So, I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. Now, for some of you, this might require you go to your table of contents. Uh, if that is you, I would encourage you to work hard on memorizing the books of the Bible so that that doesn't take place in the future. But Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. Go to Matthew and go back just five books. Uh, it's not quite the Z's. The Z's are there. The Zephaniah and Zechariah are there. They're one of the last four. And then the fifth is, is Habakkuk. It is a great book. Um, it's a book that really has much to teach us really about the suffering and the sovereignty of God. It begins with Habakkuk in distress. He's crying out to the Lord. And his situation is this. He's a righteous prophet in the land and there's wickedness all around him. And he sees this wickedness in Judah. He's distressed. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Here it comes. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you violence and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. You can feel his distress. He speaks there in verse 3 of violence. He speaks of wickedness. He speaks of iniquity. He speaks of destruction. He speaks of strife and contention that he sees. And so overwhelming are all these things that that the, the wicked overpower the righteous and the righteous thus are deprived of the justice that is due them. That's the point of verse 4. Proverbs 29, verse 2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But a wicked man rules, the people groan. And that's taking place. Habakkuk is groaning at all the wickedness that's taking place in Judah. In his pain, he's praying to God. But to make matters worse, God was silent. I mean, see, it's one thing for the wicked to rise up to power, and you see that, but it's another thing altogether when God doesn't do anything about it. One of the biggest struggles that we have now in parenting is that we have some parenting experts in our home, namely our older two. And uh, there are some times when violence and strife and contention arises, and mom and dad are silent about the matter, and it causes consternation, right? As they tell us what poor parents we are, and we are. But such was happening to Habakkuk. Is that he was there and he's saying all these evil things are happening. God, you're, you're silent. So the intensity is just doubled by the fact that God was silent. And his pain comes out in verse 2. He says, oh God, how long will it be? How long will these things? How long can I cry out to you? How long can I plead with you? How long can I beg you? And nothing happens. He's just begging this long situation. I'm sure there were many of the original hearers who felt the same way. I mean, even, even think back to the, the book of Hebrews. They were in the same situation. They're experiencing justice gone awry. 
You remember last week we looked in verse 34 about how people were taking their property? That's justice gone awry. Remember they're experiencing unjust public ridicule? There was the wicked triumphing over the righteous. And God was silent to the Hebrew hearers. He didn't stop the suffering. He let it continue on. They experienced the violence. They were crying to the Lord for help, surely, but nothing was coming. And as Habakkuk says, how long? Well, in verse 5, we see the answer. God responds. And God says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Just it's a it's it's a broad it's a broad thing. I want you to be amazed at this. Chris recently saw some kind of video where they they called out punctuations, like a, a comma was a and a period was a I forget what what is it. A comma is a and a period is a and an explanation point is a what? Shoop. Okay, so ready. So it's like this. It's a, look among the nations. Shoop. Observe. Shoop. Be absurd, astonished. Zoom. Wonder. Zoom. Just big. He's just saying, hey, look at this. You won't believe this. This is like, I want to capture your attention. Did I capture your attention with that? <laughs> I think so. It's nothing that Habakkuk would ever expected. It's nothing that we ever would have anticipated. And so listen with eager ears what's coming up. He says, I'm going to do something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Verse 6, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. So the Chaldeans is another name for what? Who knows who the Chaldeans are? They are, yeah, Nathan? The who? Hittites? Not quite the Hittites. That's a good guess. Who else are they? The Babylonians. Good job. Is that Andrew back there? Good job. They are the Babylonians. And we know from history that Babylon came and took away Judah. They, they con- conquered them, captured them, killed many in the land, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, wiped the city flat, tore down the walls, carried away many of the Jewish people into exile into Babylon. That's why it says they're that fierce and impetuous people. But look how the text says about these Chaldeans, these Babylonians. God says, I am raising them up. I'm raising up these Babylonians to come and conquer. In other words, they didn't merely come upon the scene by accident. They didn't amass a great power by their own ingenuity. They didn't come to be a world power in their own might. No. God's hand was upon them. And God says, Babylon, I'm going to raise you up so that you might destroy Judah. Had you been told that beforehand, I think you might have said, I I don't think so. But that's the point of wondering and astonishing. Because these people weren't kind people. They were violent and cruel. Look at how they're described, verse 6. Fierce and impetuous. They marched throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. 
The horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. See the adjectives described there? They are fierce people. Verse 6, they are dreaded and feared. Verse 7, they are a strong army, has a, has a power second to none. Verse 8, they've known great victory, taking many, many people captive in recent days. They, so much so, they collect captives like sand. I mean, our kids will hoard a lot of things, but they won't hoard sand. And here they're just hoarding these people like sand, just kind of bringing them in. They mock at kings because they fear nobody, verse 10. And regarding Judah, we read in verse 11, they're going to sweep through like the wind and pass on. It's like, like Judah is in the way, but it's just going to, wind is going to come and, and they're just going to keep going like Judah is not even going to stop them. They just move on to the next plunder. No big deal, no trouble. Just moving on. Now, you need to catch what's happening here. Judah certainly is involved in much sin. I mean, there is a lack of justice there with Judah. There's strife and contentions. and right There's problems there. But here's Babylon in terms of a scale of wickedness. If you can do this, Judah's wickedness is here and Babylon's wickedness is, is way up here. And God says, I'm going to use this country to destroy this country. I'm going to use the unrighteous to squash the less righteous, if you will. And Habakkuk objects, verse 12. He says, and this, when I read these, you say, no God, this can't be. That's why he said, you're not going to believe it if I'm going to tell you. And he's going to say, I don't believe it. This cannot be. And then he argues with God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct. This can't be. He said, verse 13, Your eyes, O Lord, are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously, namely Babylon? If they're, they're wicked, you can't look on them with favor. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because, though these things, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Catch the dilemma. Habakkuk pulls out his systematic theology. And he says in verse 12, God, you are a holy God. You are a pure God. He says, you are so holy that you cannot approve evil. Right, God? You can't look with favor upon evil. Right, God? 
But the Chaldeans, they are wicked people. Verse 15, they capture people like fishermen capture fish with hooks and nets. And you look through history, and even Ezekiel, I think it's in Ezekiel 34, it speaks about kings being dragged away literally with hooks in their jaws, being dragged along by chains to Babylon just to immoralize the people, demoralize the people, to make things bad for them, to make people suffer. Uh, they're idolaters, worshiping their power. That's, that's what it means here, where they, they worship their fishing nets. That's what it says. I think it's verse 15, right? Verse 16, they offer a sacrifice to their net. And, and that's, that's metaphorical in some place, but it's them worshiping, worshiping and bowing down to their military powers. And in the question, verse 17, they're idolatrous people who slay nations without sparing. And the question today is this, how is it, God, you're looking upon these wicked Chaldeans with favor? How is it that you're raising up these wicked people to accomplish your will when your eyes are too pure to look upon evil people like this? It's the dilemma of the book. And in some sense, I think the Hebrew people, the Hebrews, the original hearers, the Hebrews, might have the same issue as well. There's injustice. How, how can this be? We're, we're, we've got the Messiah and we're living for Him, but, our, but our other things are coming and it's hard and it's difficult. Well, chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk concludes his thought. He says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on my rampart. You almost get the sense where he's saying, my, my argument's done. I'm the, I'm the prosecuting attorney. I rest my case. God, you're in the wrong. Here I stand. And then maybe sarcastically a little bit, he says, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Yeah, how am I wrong, God? You're the one that's wrong. You can't do that. It's the thrust of what is there. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, we see God answering Habakkuk. And it comes um, a little bit like God answering Job. Strong and forceful and will cause Habakkuk to shut up. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. It sets the tone for what's coming. A terrible time is coming. You may want to run away from the city before the Babylonians arrive on the scene. You might, may want to run away from the judgment that is coming. Much of chapter 2 is all about the woes that come to wicked people. Like His judgment, it'll come. You don't have to worry about it. You have to worry about the Babylonians. I'll take care of them. And then we come to the two verses quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. In other words, it's not here yet. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. In other words, verse 3 is saying, I've decreed this. It's going to happen. I've raised up the Chaldeans and it's coming. They're going to come and wipe out Judah and wipe out Jerusalem. You just wait for it. It's not going to delay. It's going to come in my time. So you wait. And then comes the all-important verse, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. 
Verse 4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and in our text, Hebrews 10, verse 38. This verse is an important text in the Scripture. It, it was the catalyst for the Reformation. Now, our life before God is not to be lived by our works, but rather to be lived by faith. And, and we'll come back to that verse and, and we'll dwell more upon that uh, when we get there. But I want you to think now about those in Judah during the days of Habakkuk. What does verse 4 mean? Verse 4 means that trust. we need to trust God. We have faith. We need to believe in God that His plans are right. We need to trust God that His ways are right. We need to trust God that He will provide through the troubles. That's the message of the book of Habakkuk. Even when things are bad, even when you're being surrounded by iniquity and wickedness, even when your country is about to be destroyed, still we need to look to God in faith. The righteous will live by His faith. And Habakkuk, by the way, learned his lesson well after hearing the woes of chapter 2 all poured out, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report about You and I fear. Where once he maybe stood arrogantly a little bit, I presented my case, now he says, O Lord, I hear and I fear. O Lord, revive Your work in the midst of years. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He fully understood what's happening and the wrath is coming, but God, remember mercy. And then the conclusion comes in chapter 3, verse 16. It's a great model of Habakkuk and how he learned faith. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and my pla- in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. <laughs> I quivered, I'm shaking, decays in my bones, because I must wait for the destruction to come. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, and though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He will make my feet like hinds feet and make me walk on high places. That's the resolve of faith, right? Things are going terrible for me and things are going to get worse. We don't know what happened to Habakkuk. Maybe he was killed by the Babylonians. We don't know. He said, things may go terrible for me. His resolve is this in verse 17, though I lose my farm, though I lose my job, though I lose my animals, though I lose my house, though I have no money left, though I am completely wiped out, yet, verse 18, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I love how Habakkuk transitions. First, he looks at Judah and finds despair there. Then he turns to Babylon and finds despair there. And then he looks to the Lord and finds hope there. That's where he finds his strength. He says in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. That's where he finds victory. This whole imagery about making my feet like hinds feet. 
you can see the, the mountain deer, you know, the ibex prancing upon the mountains and just soft and gentle and flighty. So he says to me, I'm strengthened and I can walk on the high places safe and secure even though destruction is about to come. And this sort of faith which Habakkuk lives is the sort of faith to which the writer of the Hebrews is calling his readers. Yes, things are hard. Yes, you're being mocked for your faith in Christ. Yes, you're being ridiculed because you believe in the Messiah. Yes, you're going through physical sufferings. Yes, people are taking away your possessions. Yes, there's no justice throughout the land. But you must endure. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of endurance. You need to endure. And what's the key to your endurance? What's the key to your endurance? Faith. And the faith in which those in the days of Habakkuk were called is the faith which the original readers were called. It's the faith to which we are called. I say this, church family, trust the Lord. Exalt in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Let Him be your strength regardless of your circumstances. How easy is it to praise God when things are going well, but when things are not going well, still we're called to praise God. Faith is believing God and trusting Him like Habakkuk did. Now let's turn back to Hebrews and see see what's going on here. The message is the same. I took all that time in Habakkuk because it's a great, it's a great passage to speak about even when things are difficult, yet you're still trusting the Lord. I want you to remember again the reason why he quotes these verses is to give the people counsel as to how to endure. I have two points this morning. And they will be short. What's the key to endurance? It's faith. First of all, as I've named my first point, is this. What's the key to endurance? It's faith in His coming. Verse 37. For yet in a very little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. Again, I said earlier, this is a loose quotation from Habakkuk. And... uh, Here's why. In the case of Habakkuk, the coming was a a coming of the Chaldeans to destroy Judah and take her captive. But the writer here twists. It's not the coming of the Chaldeans. Rather, it's the coming of who? Who's coming here? Christ is coming. He, he He like changes it a little bit. It's not the Babylonians who are coming to destroy. Rather, it's Jesus who is returning to save. And you can even see in verse 38, as we, we get back there, it's, it's different. You know, the order is different about my righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In the book of Habakkuk, it is different. It speaks about uh, the soul of a person who's shrinking back. And so, he really, it's kind of a, a change quotation. Now, in some regard, that's okay. He's not saying this is exactly what Habakkuk says. He's taking the thought, he's applying it to the circumstance. And that's permitted because he's not trying to quote it exactly. But the thoughts there are exactly the same. Is that, that, that God is coming or the judgment is coming and you need to stand firm in that and you need to live by faith. But here we see the promise of the Messiah. He who is coming will come and will not delay. You know, in this sense, they, 
He was almost saying that you are close to the finish line. So, so, so press on. Know, know that it's, it's closer now than when you first believed. Know that you're, you're right there at the door. <clears throat> and when, when you're close, you can endure. I mean, you ever seen a cross-country race? These guys are racing, whatever, three miles, five miles, or a mile. And, uh, you know, they start off and, and they're off and running and, and they're going about their, their trot. You know, some are going faster than others to be sure. Almost all of them, though, are, are keeping a pretty steady pace according to their abilities and their endurance and their training until they see the finish line. And when they see the finish line, something changes. And what do they do when they see the finish line? They start, they start like running and sprinting like mad. They, they give it all they've got. Here they have the jogging for miles, and now they come sprinting into the finish line. Why? Because they know that when they're done with the finish line, they're through and don't have to account for anything. They can just kind of go on the, the ground and just rest. I remember watching the Olympics this past winter and watching the cross-country skiers. It was kind of hilarious. Um, but the, I'm not sure if you remember, but they were cross-country skiing and whatever, skiing for miles up and down mountains. And as soon as they crossed the finish line, remember what they did? Any of you saw? They like fell over. You know. <laughs> Except I remember like one American didn't. He's like, oh, what's that about? Aren't you supposed to like put your hand? <laughs> you like kept going. But all the like Norwegians and the Swedes and all this, like, like what you're supposed to do? They came in and they, they fell over. Because they gave it their all. They were done. And, and in that last sight where they saw the finish line, they could just give it their all. And that's the idea here. Is that we can keep going because our end is very soon. It's what our Christian life is. It's, our end is going to be soon. James tells us our life is just a vapor. In that regard, it's soon. But Christ may be coming back soon. Believing that He's coming back soon is something that will help you endure. I mean, apart from the cross-country runner, we know of other examples of that, right? The salesman. If he thinks he's got a, a good sale on the hand, he'll work very hard when the sale's just about to be completed. I mean, he'll do anything for the customer. It's like he thinks he's right there, just right on the end of the sale. Give me a signature, please. And he will endure and he'll do whatever is asked because he knows it's close. It's urgent. The student will pull an all-nighter when the final exam is coming the next day. Because the student knows that after the exam comes sleep and summer vacation. And so I can stay up all night so as to finish my, my studying so I can take my test. Right, Krissa? Yeah. The roofer will work until dark knowing the rain is coming. Up, oh, the rain is coming. We've got to get this going. And, you know, we'll get flashlights out there and try to get it up to get it sealed before the rain comes. Because the rain is near. The parent will stay up late Christmas Eve to make sure everything's ready for Christmas morning. Just, just working, working until that deadline because you know it's soon. And, and the idea here is the same exact thing. right? And we all know what that's about. We all push ourselves. We know the climax is soon to come. And this is the thought that ought to prevail in all our lives. Is that the return of Christ is soon. And as you believe that, you will be strengthened to endure. Look at verse 37. It says, For yet in a very little while. Now, some of this phraseology you won't even quite see from Habakkuk, though it comes from Isaiah 26, verse 20. Kind of this phraseology. There's debate about whether he's really trying to quote from Isaiah 26 
whether it's just a common phrase or whether it just happened to be the same words. Who, who really knows? But the idea comes right here. It's soon. It's a very little while. He was coming, will come, and will not delay. This has been the hope of Christians for centuries. The hope in the soon return of Jesus Christ. It's always been the hope that He's coming back soon. While on earth, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or it is near. And some of you take it, well, it's right here. It's, it's about to come. And in some sense, it did come with Jesus. In other sense, it hasn't yet come fully. It's, it's a theologian's dynamic. It's already, but it's not quite yet. But the apostles thought things were coming soon. In Acts chapter 1, you remember they're talking about Jesus. Is it this time you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it now? Is it soon? Is it here? And Jesus said, it's not for me to tell you at this point. Paul thought that things were near. He said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, being eager to await His return. Peter said the end of all things is near. James said the coming of the Lord is near. The final verses of Revelation, we hear Jesus promising His soon return. Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22, verse 20, Yes, I am coming quickly. Again and again and again, coming quickly, the soon return of Christ. I remember a, a preacher telling a story about the preacher who was talking about this text. Do you remember this, Krissa? And he was talking in Revelation 20, and Jesus says, Yes, I'm coming quickly. And, and he said, Jesus said, Yes, I'm coming quickly. And he's banging on his pulpit, and he's, he's just getting this up. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming. And so excited he was that he chipped the the pulpit over and fell into the front row and, and then he apologized to the lady in the front row and says, she said, you didn't have to apologize. You warned me about 15 times that you were coming. <laughs> but too often, we, we can be like that lady who, yes, I'm coming quickly and not even thinking about what that means. Jesus has promised, yes, I'm coming quickly. We ought to eagerly await Him. The, the people in the Hebrews were supposed to await Him. Look at chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. You need to be eagerly awaiting his soon return. Because when you see the end, and when you see the finish line, it can help you endure. today. And it's faith. It's trusting where He is. Because it's kind of hard because Christians for 2,000 years have believed in the soon return of Christ. And some, like Bertrand Russell, used the whole fact that Jesus claimed that He was coming back soon and all the apostles thought He was coming back soon as a demonstration that Jesus was not such a good teacher after all. Because He was mistaken, Bertrand Russell says. That's, he makes that argument in a pamphlet he wrote called Why I'm Not a Christian. But he didn't have faith. He doesn't have faith to believe that yes, Jesus, though He's tarried, yet He will come. It will come in His time. But we need to believe in His return as being soon Christians have always believed. We need to eagerly anticipate it, like chapter 9, verse 28 says. Because when you, when you see the end in sight, you, you can endure. I've told the story of Florence Chadwick before. 
but it makes such a good illustration here. I need to tell it again. How many of you remember who Florence Chadwick is? Some of you do. Good. She uh, was a swimmer. She was the first woman to swim 20 miles. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel back and forth. She wanted to swim from Catalina Island to California, 21 miles. So she got up early one morning and into the numbing cold of the day and it was a thick fog and she's trying to swim to the California coast. As she's swimming along there, they got a boat and a coach teaching her, training her to keep going, keep going, keep going. And she's swimming for 15 hours. And she says, let me out. I can't, I can't make it. And the coach saying, yes, you can make it. She says, no, I can't. She, she said, look, we're close. And she looked up and all she could see was fog. She couldn't see the land. And she just finally gave up. So finally they took her in less than a mile from her goal. Later, she said, the news conference, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I think I could have made it. And so likewise, for us, same is true. When we can see the finish line, the finish comes easier. So what's the key to endurance? It's faith. Do you believe that He's coming? Do you believe He's coming soon? Do you believe He's coming yet? in a very little while. It will help you endure. So faith in His coming is the first key to endurance. Second key to endurance is faith in your living. That comes in verses 38 and 39. Really, we have a contrast here. We see those who live by faith and we see those who don't live by faith. I'm just going to put them all together um, because they talk about the same thing. Live by faith. Verse 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So here we come, verse 38, The righteous one shall live by faith. So you say, what does that mean? What does it mean to live by faith? Well, first of all, it does mean everything that Paul taught about justification by faith alone. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now that no one is justified before the law, before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. In other words, living by faith means we don't look to our law keeping to make us just before the Lord. Rather, we look to the Lord by faith through, through Christ who makes us justified before Him. In this way, we follow the footsteps of our spiritual father Abraham, who said that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham looked to the Lord and God then looked down at Abraham, not at his sin, but he looked at his faith and washed away his sins. That's the heart of faith. And Paul says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the whole doctrine here of justification by faith alone coming from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is really the hinge upon which all the Reformation swung. Martin Luther, the central figure in the Reformation, really battled with this phrase in, in, in the book of Romans. Chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It includes this quote from Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And he struggled with this. And this is what he wrote. It's a famous quote. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because it took 
I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Day and night I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy He justifies us. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole Scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, and now it became to me inexpressible, sweet, and greater love. The passage of Paul came to me a gateway to heaven. That's what Martin Luther said. And he's talking about the righteousness of God. He's talking about the righteousness of God in faith that we get. It's the whole context there in Hebrews or Romans 1.11. And certainly that's what it means here. Hebrews 11, verse 38, it means that we need to live by faith, trusting God in Christ to forgive us all our sins. But there's something else going on here. I think what else it means is everything it meant in context of Habakkuk. Everything it means in context here of of Hebrews. It means that we endure our difficulties, trusting God to be our help. I mean, that is what all of Hebrews is about, right? When things are difficult around us, you still believe and trust in God to carry you through. Even when being mocked. Even being scorned. Even when being tempted. Even as the great saints of old, when burned at the stake, they're believing and trusting. I remember the story of Ridimer, uh, Latimer and Ridley. Friends, condemned to death, tied to the stake, about to be burned. They're talking to each other, encouraging one another. Stay true, brother. We'll be with the Lord in paradise today. There they were, believing through the midst of all the difficult trials that they had come their way. Because when trials come, you can easily lose your way. Pilgrim's Progress. I mentioned it last week. How many times this pilgrim on his journey to the celestial city gets off? He starts going to the hill of morality. Right? He forgets his scroll or he goes this way or he goes that way. He, just, he is tempted by Demas to go to the filthy lucre and, and pulled all these different ways. But it's just straight ahead and faith will keep us, keep us right there. Remember when they walked through Vanity Fair, they plugged their, their ears so they wouldn't see and they just wanted to walk right straight through and then they were captured and jailed. They got in trouble in Downing Castle and all this. It's just faith to, to not doubt God because when trials come, you can easily start doubting God. You can start trusting in yourself. You can turn to others and other things and people think you can help you. But ultimately, it's the righteous who will live by faith. That's how we ought to live. And that's how we endure. By seeing what's before us, believing and trusting in that. Faith is, if you look in chapter 11, verse 1, We're going to talk about this in weeks to come. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, you don't see it all, but it's a conviction. I know these things are true, and we know those things are true. You can walk forward along those ways, steady and secure. But there's another way that people live. It's not by faith. The negative example here in verses 38 and 39 are are those who shrink back. If you look at verse 38, it says, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That gives us a clue about what it means to, to live in faith or not to live in faith. We can, we can trust the Lord and go forward, or we can shrink back. And I think what that means is turn, turn away from trusting Him to be trusting in other things. See, because when you live by faith, you press on. When you live by faith, you endure hardships. And when you live by faith, you trust God in all ways. But when you 
shrink back, you trust yourself and you turn away from God. I learned this week a fact, maybe many of you know this, about the life of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher. Um, was given a book by him. And so I said, yeah, this is a good reference book. I put it on my shelf. And just one night, I kind of looked at it, started reading through this. I said, wow, Avon, do you know this? He was born in 1844, son of a Lutheran pastor. Age of 20, he studied theology at the University of Bonn. But after a semester, he quit. He lost his faith. He was one who shrunk back. And from there on, Frederick Nietzsche, his life went downhill. Oh, not in the world's eyes did it go downhill. The world's eyes was very successful. At the age of 24, he became a professor of classical philology at the University of Basel. Wrote a dozen books. I mean, was, was very prominent. Was, was a philosopher writing these books. Until he wrote his last book. Anyone know what the name of his last book was? What's it called? Andrew, do you know that one? I didn't think so. <laughs> it's called The Antichrist. In this book, he was 44 years old when he wrote this, is a full assault on Christianity. Just pours out his hatred of God. Listen to what he says. I debate even whether to read these things, but you just got to see his hatred, how far he shrunk back. But I do. He says, wherever there are, you just feel the hatred he has towards God. Wherever there are walls, I shall inscribe this eternal accusation against Christianity upon them. I can write in letters which makes even the blind to see. It's like in the last page of his book. I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct for revenge for which no expedient is sufficiently poisonous secret, subterranean, petty. I call it the one immortal blemish of mankind. And his whole book is just pouring out this venomous hatred of Christianity. And a few months later, after he wrote these words, Frederick Nietzsche went insane. At age 44, he could no longer function in society. And for the next ten years, he was in... Hospitals, people care for... He couldn't function any longer as a person. Now, there are debates about what causes insanity. Some say a, a slow-growing brain tumor finally clicked in him. Some say it was syphilis or some other disease. Some say it was just simple dementia that came on early rather than late. I, I don't, I've not read enough about that to have some kind of educated position, but I can't help notice the connection. that when he writes this diatribe against God... Within months, he's struck insane the rest of his life. He is like Nebuchadnezzar, though he never saw the Lord. Certainly, I think about Nietzsche. He heard the truth of Christianity. Being born into a religious home, studying theology, certainly gave him exposure to the truth. But, when he writes against religion, he writes against Christianity. It's not just he writes... He certainly did this against God but this book was against Christianity. It's not like he just says religion. He says Christianity. That is Christ and the cross. He hated the cross. He hated the very means of his potential hope. And I just put him forth as one who shrunk back. It says God had no pleasure in him. And if God can control the rise and falls of nations like the Babylonians, Judah, he can certainly control the rise and fall of individual people and such was the fate of Nietzsche. Listen, just know that God will not be mocked. 
You can't write these words against Christianity and expect blessing upon your life. You can't say these words. You can't mock Jesus. You can't, as it says in chapter 10, verse 29, you can't insult the Spirit of grace. You can't trample under the feet of the Son of God without realizing that judgment is going to come. And if you shrink back, God says, my soul takes no pleasure in you and you can only anticipate a life of cursing and bitterness and difficulty. That's not the life to live. The life to live is a life of faith that has God on your side where He looks upon you as righteous, gives you His favor. And then verse 39, really the same things are told here. Changed in order a little bit. But they really come as an encouragement. You think about this passage, it's become a big warning in verses 26-31. through And then encouragement in verses 32 and following, but he's kind of drifting into a warning, but before he gets out of the warning, he's going to encourage them as well, and that's what verse 39 is. He's taking this verse from Habakkuk and expositing it. He's, he's applying it. And he knows, he knows that his heart is faith. He knows that he's not shrinking back to destruction. And there are many to whom he's writing who's not shrinking back. He says, verse 39, but... We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. So be assured. And he said this several other times, right? Verse 32 of chapter 10. Remember the former days when God worked this fruit in your life. Or in chapter 6, he says, I'm convinced of better things concerning you, even though I'm speaking this way. For God will remember your faith and the love which you have shown toward His name. But I'm just writing to encourage you so you won't be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And here he's saying, listen, we aren't those who go to destruction. So because we're not those who shrink back, rather, look here, we have faith to the preserving of the soul. It's really the flip side of, of shrinking back goes to destruction. But faith is key to endurance. What happens? Faith then preserves your soul. Who wants your soul to be preserved? I know I do. And I trust you do. And it is the path of faith that preserves that soul. And so I just ask you, as we close here this morning, do you have faith to the preserving of your soul? Kids, do you have faith to the preserving of your soul? So the way to preserve your soul is to believe and trust in God. If not, know that you won't mock Him. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And in the weeks to come, we will talk more about faith, just what it means, how to live it, the blessings that come by it, its difficulties, its sorrows, its joys, its struggles, its concrete, all about that. We'll be in faith all of chapter 11. I'm looking forward to it. So, let's pray. Father, use these words in our lives again to convince us of how we need to be faith-filled people, faith-filled followers of Christ. Follow You in all ways. We are only just and made righteous by faith. We can only live by faith. And so help us. And I pray even as we look into Hebrews 11 uh, that You would, would help us stir within us this assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. May we believe that You're a rewarder of those who seek You. And may we realize of the blessed position we are as Christians, different than all the Old Testament saints who had faith, because we actually have the promises they only hoped for and longed for and saw from a distance. And yet they're ours in Jesus. 
And I pray that You'd help us to grasp those, embrace those. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.